Welcome to the Rob Seco Field Ready Podcast with your host, Jim Robinson. Hello, and welcome back to the Rob Seco Field Ready Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Robinson. And in today's episode, we're going to talk about the seed industry. I mean, every industry undergoes some change with the expansion and contraction of different players. The seed industry has undergone consolidation since the mid-1990s. But what we want to talk about today is what happened and why did that occur? What does it mean for farmers? And what can we learn from the the seed industry when we look at the beer industry? Today in our episode, we have Professor Phil Howard from Michigan State University. Hello, Phil. Can you introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm a faculty member in the Department of Community Sustainability at Michigan State University, and my research and teaching focus on the food system. So you've done a lot of, of research and a lot of writing about uh, the consolidation of different industries. In particular, one of the industries you focused on has been the seed industry. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of how the seed industry has, has contracted over time? You know, what was the landscape prior to the contraction occurring? Yeah, even as late as the 1970s, there were thousands of independent seed companies in the United States. And uh, many of those started to be acquired by various larger firms. Uh, And then this consolidation really accelerated in the mid-1990s when chemical companies um, started to uh, patent transgenic seeds. uh, they They were commercializing seeds that had full patent protections. And um, that really changed it so that uh, the smaller seed companies were uh, losing market share to these firms. In many cases, they had no choice but to uh, form alliances with these firms at the beginning or to be acquired by these firms. So it actually was a really uh, global change to where uh, just six firms uh, very quickly gained the majority of control of the world's proprietary seeds. Absolutely. Now that that's a really interesting statement you're making that that you know people think of today individual companies having proprietary genetics that that they've worked on and developed, but you know that wasn't always necessarily the case. I mean, prior to the 1970s, there wasn't any sort of a um, plant variety protection um, uh, landscape for patents or any other agency. With that, I mean, as you've seen kind of additional investment come in, particularly from chemical uh, companies, as you mentioned, I mean, how has how that and the enforcement of those laws, how did that really roll into the, the acquisition of the smaller companies? Yeah, it was really critical. Uh, the intellectual property protections um, have been changing over the years and getting stricter and stricter. And essentially, you can think of them as taking away and more and more rights for farmers to save and replant their own seed. And the enforcement of that by uh, the federal government, the U.S. and other governments, other places, uh, have made it really challenging for farmers. Um, you know, we've had examples where farmers have gone to prison for saving and replanting seeds. Um, so this has, um, you know, steered a system where farmers could could buy seeds and then maybe save and replant them year after year, uh, to a situation where. They, they can no longer legally do that. So farmers have to go back to these seed companies year after year. And often the biggest seed companies in the world who have most of the patents, um, and then they, they, they don't have the option to, um, you know, exchange seeds with their neighbors or, or save their own seeds. Exactly. I mean, bin running seed was a, a very commonly used practice. I mean, even through parts of the 90s with soybeans, bin running seed was was fairly common practice. And with corn, it was just a little bit different because 
with corn, you couldn't use open uh, pollinated varieties anymore. Basically, after the advent of hybrid corn uh, in the late 30s, as open pollinated varieties have traditionally not been competitive as competitive as hybrid corn. Now, you mentioned this earlier that that things really started to accelerate in the 90s, and you know the the patent protections initially came in on germplasm around the early 70s or so, but transgenic seed in the 90s really accelerated this this factor. And if you could just touch a little bit on how and why maybe it caused that acceleration. Yeah, it was 1996 that Roundup Ready soybeans were introduced by Monsanto and the adoption rate was sky high. So very quickly, um, you know, over 90% of soybean farmers started using these seeds um, and that made it so... um, you know, that, that culture of saving and replanting seed, bin run seed, was, was very quickly dismantled. You had a lot of seed cleaners, um, you know, almost every county used to have a seed cleaner. Mm-hmm. They went out of business. And not only that, Monsanto was able to tie a, uh, a, an herbicide that was about to go off patent to these seeds. So they were able to leverage a monopoly in one industry to a monopoly in another industry and, you know, it was very effective for them. They had really high profits. They made a lot of money off of this. Um, you know, remarkably, they maintain a really high share of uh, glyphosate sales, 80%, even six years after the patent ran out. And that was despite the fact that prices were three to four times higher than generics. And it was because they had become so powerful and had so much influence on seed dealers with incentives and were able to tie this proprietary herbicide to their proprietary seeds. Absolutely. So almost a dual monopoly on, on not just the um, the germplasm itself that they're develop, developing and integrating or integrating these traits into, but also the herbicides, which provided the dual mode of profitability for uh, companies like Monsanto. You you mentioned that there was a really rapid adoption process of uh, glyphosate resistant soybeans, and we've seen the same thing across all crops that that have had broadly uh, uh, commercialized uh, transgenic traits, so corn, soybeans, et cetera. And so when there's only one provider of these, this technology, I mean, how has that really uh, allowed those, those giants like Monsanto to not only gain the monopoly, but also impact price? Yeah, I mean, there are very few firms that can do the research and development and the regulatory costs for bringing these traits to market. And so when you have a block buster trait that farmers want, like glyphosate resistance or expressing a BT toxin. Uh, You know, Monsanto was the only game in town, although they also developed a web of uh, cross-licensing agreements with other major firms. So, you know, when other companies develop their own um, herbicide tolerance or other traits, they, they would exchange those traits so that each firm could kind of stack them up in one seed, which created a huge barrier to smaller independent firms to, you know, to get access to those traits, they either had to form an alliance with them or be acquired by them. Uh, and often, you know, not on the same favorable terms that the more powerful players had to get access to those traits. So it was a, you know, essentially a cartel that kept out smaller independent seed companies and made the industry far less competitive than it should have been. So what does the consolidation of the seed industry mean for farmers? I mean, how does that impact them in the way they do business as well as what their outcomes may be? Yeah, we've touched on higher prices, for example, the higher prices for, for glyphosate. Um, the seed prices have gone up. 
Um, and, and that's not surprising. Economists say that when uh, roughly four firms have about 40% of the market, you can expect prices to increase because they can just signal their intention to raise prices and the others will follow suit. And you know we have a situation now where just two firms control about 40% of the market globally. Uh, but it's not just prices. Um, uh, farmers have experienced um, fewer options. There are less varieties. Some of these firms have dropped a number of varieties as a cost-saving measure uh, to pay back the money they borrowed to make some of these acquisitions. Uh, another change is, you know, people could debate, is there less innovation? Um, you know, I, I tend to think there's a lot of evidence that there is less innov innovation than there used to be. Uh, but what's clear is the innovation is becoming more narrowly targeted, uh, focused on, for example, blockbuster traits in just a few crops and, and, and targeted just a few geographic areas where uh, these firms can get the best prices for those, those traits and crops. So, and then, then we also touched on um, the decline in seed saving. So the infrastructure for saving soybeans has been dismantled, um, you know, some of the newer farmers in the last few decades don't have the experience of saving and replanting seeds. So um, that's another big change that, that the industry has seen. Absolutely. And you know, by, by blocking, you know, a lot of independent seed companies got started due to that uh, saving seed. And, and it was just a, basically a farmer who saved back some seed and maybe sold some of it to their neighbors and then kind of expanded from there and uh, grew into to what now has become a, a you know, successful seed company. But without that, we kind of increased the barrier to entry because to get into today's seed selling environment, you really need to have a, a large amount of assets with agreements with multinationals uh, and the know-how to be able to market the seed and appropriately steward uh, the various traits in those seed. You know, th this is a fairly bleak outlook on the, the seed industry overall. I mean, it doesn't look great for farmers, but you know, is there any silver lining there if we look at other industries and say the beer industry? Yeah, I think the beer industry is a really positive example of what can happen. Um, you know, we had a few firms become very dominant a few decades ago. So by 1979, for example, there were less than 100 breweries in the entire United States. And there wasn't a lot of diversity. They were all putting out basically the same product, a pale lager. Uh, mm -hmm. Most people can't tell apart in a blind taste test. Mm -hmm. uh, but then there were some uh, regulatory changes. Home brewing was actually illegal until 1979. So when home brewing was legalized, you know, you know, from 1920 to 1979, nobody could brew beer at home because after pr prohibition, it wasn't wasn't lifted. But then we had all these craft breweries start in the 80s and 90s, and they slowly picked up steam. And as the big firms got bigger and less innovative and increased their prices, you know, that a lot made it even easier for some of these smaller firms to um, succeed. And we now have a situation where in the U.S., about 25% of sales are from independent beer firms. And the bigger firms are really struggling to maintain the share that they, are, they have right now. Now, how, how were those independent firms able to differentiate themselves from uh, basically the oligopoly that, that existed at the time? I mean, they weren't you know, just making American-style pale lagers. What were they doing to differentiate? Yeah, we had this explosion of craft breweries that focused on all the varieties that you know, people couldn't get in the United States, except for a few exceptions with imports. So um, you know, the Great American Beer Festival 
uh, for years has increased the number of categories they judge and then the subcategories within those. So you have about 100 different beer styles that are judged at this competition every year. And there's an enormous amount of uh, variety available to people at their, you know, mainstream supermarkets, uh, which didn't exist a few decades ago. Absolutely. So, so they were able to differentiate by offering a product that was fundamentally different than what those uh, those large firms were doing. And you know, just to kind of tie this back, because you know we we've seen that shift to now become, like you said, about 25 percent of the market in the beer industry. And you know the, the only limitation right now is on predominantly the distribution side of things, I believe. Is that correct? Yeah, it's been a real struggle, even though it's now easier to get into brewing beer, the distribution, um, getting onto retail shelves is still dominated by these largest firms. So unless you're Anheuser-Busch InBev or Molson Coors, um, you know, it's very hard to find a distributor um, and, and to break it, break into those shelves. And even the, the largest craft breweries are, are struggling because Anheuser-Busch InBev is in the states where it's allowed, starting to take over uh, distributors that used to be, you know, their distributors, but they were legally independent firms. Mm-hmm. Now they have direct distribution in, uh, you know, eleven companies that they've acquired. Roughly ten percent of what they sell, they now sell directly to retailers. And you know, a lot of people don't know that uh, these these firms, AB InBev and Molson Coors, have a lot of power over the layout of the supermarket shelves. They determine which beer goes where, how much space it takes. And that's why you see massive amounts of shelf state shelf space taken up by AB InBev, Molson Coors products, even if they may have different brand names that you don't realize are owned by them. And, you know, they're trying to narrow the space available to those craft beer, even as their sales are increasing. So they have no problem, you know, helping these retailers make less money by selling more of their products when they would make more money if they expanded their, their this shelf space devoted to craft breweries. Exactly. That, that, so the craft brewers absolutely do have their uphill battle to fight yet, but they've, they have been able to more or less kind of, I mean, to a large degree, change the taste profile of American consumers that, that realize they no longer just want that, that American style pale lager. Now, how might that relate to the seed industry? What can the seed industry do in order to more accurately, or not less more accurately, but uh, better emulate the beer industry and maybe you know improve upon it on, in terms of diversifying suppliers? Yeah, one of the things about getting bigger and bigger is it makes you less nimble. I mean, there are a lot of spaces that you can't get into; uh, you can't move quickly enough. So. You know, one response, uh, the, the big brewers have, have now started to buy up craft brewers because they didn't have uh, the ability to in, innovate and create new styles and um, focus on that aspect. So, uh, but there are other, you know, it shows that there are um, spaces where people uh, can address things that the big brewers aren't doing. And, you know, when you become a near monopoly, um, you get kind of complacent, um, and you tend to not work very hard to please your customers. So the big brewers have, you know, they've cheapened ingredients, for example. Um, a lot of big firms, they, they don't provide, you know, the same customer service in the seed industry, for example, that a smaller firm can provide. So it opens up a lot of opportunities, um, you know, things like 
uh, you know, seeds that are, are targeted to specific regions. The big firms are having less and less ability to do that, uh, mm-hmm. to develop traits that are not uh, just blockbuster traits, the traits that maybe smaller groups of farmers would benefit from. You know, these are all ways that, uh, you know, smaller seed companies can can find a space within this industry that at one end is becoming more and more dominated by fewer and larger firms. Yeah. So I think overall, kind of what we've talked about in general is, is that in the seed industry that was once thriving with thousands of individual small companies, it contracted extremely rapidly from the 70s and especially during the 90s and early 2000s. And a lot of this, what, what ultimately created it was intellectual property protection around the germplasm and more particularly about around the transgenic traits available. And so because of the rapid adoption of those traits and the mechanism by, by which they created more or less a monopoly on seed and germplasm in the industry, as well as the herbicide used, um, created such profitability that a lot of the fir- smaller firms were acquired. Now, if we look at the independent craft brewery market, what we can see is that that by changing their overall product offering and what kind of specialties they get into, the seed industry may actually be able to learn a couple of things and focus in with smaller and more independent companies on those specialty markets, whether it's taking what a major company would consider as a, a leveraged market and actually focusing on developing products for that market or differentiating themselves through services, characteristics, as as well as any other differentiated factors a small independent may be able to do. Well, Phil, thank you so much for joining us on today's episode. Yeah, thanks for having me. As always, be sure to tune in on the 1st and 15th every month for new episodes. And until then, stay field ready. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Rob Seco Field Ready Podcast. Join us next time to be field ready. A Parkville Media Production.